following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. we come together in the name of Jesus. Our Father, we come to study your word, to hear you speak to our hearts. And I come humbly asking for the presence of the Holy Spirit to fill this broadcast with your presence and your power. Lord, We need to be a part of the church of the Holy Spirit. 
would you show the way? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters who are joining to listen today to this gospel message. I was born in the church. My parents were very active in a conservative holiness church. The greatest conflict I've had, and it's lasted my entire life, and is even much more intense today than it has ever been in the past. I've not been able to understand the great difference between what the scriptures teach and what we practice in the American church. And, I might add, what we also believe in the American church. It seems that we can read the scriptures and pass right over very direct arrows of truth that would transform the church today, but we go right on by them. Our hearts are seared. We don't even see them. That has to change. If we're going to reach the world with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God, there's going to have to be a radical change. I want to read for you a brief description of what was going on in the New Testament church. I don't read this to you to say this is what we should be doing. I read it to you to say this was the effect that the gospel had, the gospel that was proclaimed by the apostles. Acts, the fourth chapter, I'm reading from a literal translation, Dr. Lavender. Acts, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 32. Now the heart and the soul of the multitude of the ones having believed was one, and not one was claiming any of his possessions to be his own, but all things were common to them. And with great power the apostles were giving proof of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. For neither was there anyone among them lacking, for as many as were owners of lands or houses were selling them, and from time to time they were bringing the proceeds of the things being sold, and they were laying them at the feet of the apostles, and distribution was made from time to time in proportion to what anyone was having need. Now, Joseph, having been called Barnabas, or son of encouragement, by the apostles, which is being interpreted son of encouragement, a Levite, an inhabitant of Cyprus by race, having a field after having sold it, he brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Now, the next part of the story we've already covered the highlight was in chapter 5, the just doom of the hypocrites, Ananias and Sapphira, who thought they would fit in and lie about whether they were giving the entire amount. They were not required to give the entire amount, but they were expected to be honest. And they were saying they were giving everything, but in fact, <clears throat> pardon me, they were holding back a portion for themselves. And the result was they were lying to the Holy Spirit and they died. Instantly, as Peter spoke to them and confronted them, and they lied to Peter, they were lying to the Holy Spirit and they died right there. Now, it picks up 
in verse 12 of chapter 5, Now by the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were being performed among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was located on the eastern side of the temple built by Herod. Solomon's porch had a a roof over it, so they were not in the elements of, of the rain or snow. However, it was not heated or air-conditioned, as you might expect. But it was the gathering place for the New Testament church. Verse 13, But of the rest, no one was daring to be joined to them, and yet the people were esteeming them highly. Now, believers were the more being added to the Lord. Now, it seems like there's a contradiction there, but it's not. The scripture is telling us that those who were casual, those who were not earnestly seeking the salvation of their souls, would not come near this church because they were afraid they would die if they did. Their lie would be uncovered. But believers, people who actually took a stand for Jesus Christ, laid their life on the line for Jesus. And you recognize that every Christian in this day, they weren't called Christians then, they were called followers of the way. They were not called Christians until after the persecution struck them with Saul or Paul. And they went to Antioch and there proclaimed the gospel and they were called Christians as a term of scorn, meaning Christ followers. Now they were called the followers of the way, of the path, the narrow path. Those who earnestly believed in Jesus Christ and began to lay their lives down for him, they were being added constantly to the church. So the casual were afraid to come. But the committed earnestly came. Wouldn't that be a change in today's church if people were afraid to come unless they were going to be honest and lay it all on the line? if in fact they were going to leave their sin and not buy into the lie of the sinning Christian. Multitudes of both men and women were added to the church daily so that along the streets, people brought out the sick and laid them on beds and pallets that if even only the shadow of Peter passing by may overshadow some of them. And even the multitudes from the cities all around were coming to Jerusalem. In other words, they were coming from Jericho. They were coming from all of the surrounding cities. They were coming from way up in Galilee. They were bringing the sick, the ones being tormented by evil spirits, They were all being healed. You know, I hear many people today saying, you have to have faith to be healed. You have to to leave your sin to be healed. None of that was true in the New Testament church. In the New Testament church, every sick person who came was healed. They were restored. Now, a great commotion was raised in Jerusalem. All of these travelers were coming. Now, I want you to remember that Jesus was crucified at Passover. And people came in from all over the world to celebrate Passover. Now, as Jesus is crucified, there's great interest in what's going to happen. And many people did not return home from Passover. They stayed in town for the celebration of Pentecost. As long as they traveled that far, why not stay and celebrate Pentecost? Pentecost was the celebration 
of the giving of the Ten Commandment law on Mount Sinai. Now, Jesus used Pentecost, the celebration of the law, to send the Holy Spirit, because now those who came to Christ were not going to be under the law. They were going to be under the authority and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Read carefully Galatians and Colossians. It's very clear. We're not under law. We're under the Holy Spirit. Now, does that give license to sin? Absolutely no. We're under the Holy Spirit, not the happy spirit, not the liberal spirit, not the woke spirit, under the Holy Spirit. Now, part of what I want to raise today as I go forward with this story, what's it going to take for the church today to come into fellowship what's it going to take today for the church to come into fellowship one with another we're divided in so many ways doctrines are different cultures are different so many things are against the church ever coming together as one Now, we know that the day will come when the church will be one, not through ecumenism, but through holiness, through a unified position on Jesus Christ and the work he did on Calvary and how we now stand by faith in what he did on Calvary, on Jesus Christ. Now, we have not understood correctly We don't believe on Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus Christ. He is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the spoken Word of God. He is the light that entered into the world. He did not come to condemn sinners. He came to deal with sin. He came to deal with sin by forgiving us of our sins, but we need to be very careful with that term forgive because the term forgive is literally a legal word. It's not a regenerative word. What do I mean? The word forgive means that I write off the debt. I no longer count it against you. But in forgiving you, I don't change you. In other words, you're not changed. You're left as you were before, but your debt is no longer existent. When Jesus comes and he forgives us for our sins, the word in the Greek is aphemy, and it means he removes it. There is a regenerative process. What does regeneration mean? Well, if I have my arm cut off and I no longer have but a stub, if this arm is to be regenerated, it means my arm will grow out again with a hand and fingers, thumb. My hand will be restored to what it was before. When you are regenerated, you are morally taken back to where Adam was before the fall. When you are regenerated in the Holy Spirit, you have sin removed from you. Not just forgiven. It is forgiven. But you are also regenerated. You're also made new. You are a new person in Christ Jesus. And you no longer walk in the wickedness of sin. Now, 
What would happen if the church literally began to believe what the scriptures say and we began to make the scriptures normative or we would begin to make the scriptures our standard, our description of the walk with Jesus. Well, to do that, and I believe that that's what should happen, and I believe that's what will happen. But for that to happen, we're going to have to have the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. Pentecost is going to have to be repeated in our day with us, with me, with you. Only a church born of the Holy Spirit can be one in Jesus Christ. So today we're splintered and splattered and one man has one idea and another man has another idea and Accusations fly and judgments are passed because of the absence of the Holy Spirit. Brotherly love is very shallow and very cheap because of the absence of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 17, Now the high priest, having arisen, and all the ones with him, being the sect of the Sadducees. Now, the reason the Sadducees, in part, are so angry about this teaching of the resurrection of Jesus is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did, and we'll find later in the story that Gamal, a very sophisticated and highly sought-after teacher, who was the teacher of the Apostle Paul, by the way, He was a Pharisee. He did believe in the resurrection. These Sadducees filled with indignation and they laid their hands on the apostles or they grabbed them and put them in prison. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison during the night and having led them out, he said to them, you must go And having stood in the temple, speak to the people all the rhemas of this life. Not the logoses of this life, not the knowledge of this life. Speak to them the spirit-breathed words that you have received from Jesus and from the Holy Spirit. Now you recognize that this was a great danger for them they could be crucified. They could die. They could be stoned to death. They could be beaten to death. You remember after the crucifixion, the disciples all went to the upper room and locked the door. They were afraid the Romans were going to come and take them and crucify them as well. But now there is no fear in the disciples, the apostles or the followers of Jesus, they are fearless in the face of the threats of the governing officials that had Jesus Christ crucified. They now have the Holy Spirit. And the angel said, you must go, stand in the temple, speak to the people all the rhemas of this life, all the Spirit-breathed words, all the information you have received from Jesus and now from the Holy Spirit, go and speak it boldly in the temple. Verse 21. And having heard this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and were teaching. They obeyed. They didn't run for Galilee. 
They didn't try to escape. They were all from Galilee. They could very easily said, okay, it's getting threatening here. We're, got, we're out of here. We're gone. No. They were directed by the angel and the Holy Spirit, and they obeyed, and they did exactly what they were told. The high priest arrived at his place, and with him the others. They called the council together, all the elders of the sons of Israel, and sent to the prison for the prisoners to be brought to them. But the officers, having arrived, did not find them in prison. And having returned, they reported, We found the prison having been closed with all the security, and the guards having stood at the doors. But having opened, we found no one inside. Now when both the priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed what this might come to be. Someone, having come, reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are in the temple, having stood, and they're teaching the people. Then the captain, having gone away with the officers, brought them without violence, for they were fearing the people, lest they be stoned. And having brought them, they stood them in the presence of the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and you are determined to bring upon us the blood of this man. Yes, the blood belongs on those specific men, Ananias. Annas, the high priest. It belongs on Caiaphas. It belongs on the Sanhedrin. They are the ones who said to the Romans, Crucify this man. They are guilty of his blood. Not all Jews. Remember, Peter was a Jew. There were other believers who were Jewish. Many of them. At this point, more than 15,000. But these particular men are guilty of murdering Jesus. And the day will come when they will stand before the judgment bar of God on the charge of murdering the Most High God. But now, they're saying, because they're in power, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Didn't we place a gag order on you? And you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching. Now I want you to hear Peter's answer. It is necessary to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, having hung upon a tree. There's a principle here that we need to hear very clearly. It was the understanding of the New Testament church that they were called to obey the voice of God. They were called to obey the word of Scripture, not the governmental authorities. Now, I know what Romans 13 says, but if you'll read it carefully, you will not make the assumption that we should obey all civil authority. There are instances in Scripture where civil authority went against the Word of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are standing before the king and he commands them to bow down and worship at his idol. And they say, O king, we will not bow down. And if the Lord does not deliver us from the fire, it's okay. We will not bow down. And then Daniel. 
He's told an edict has been passed by the king, by the civil authority. You will not pray to any god except to me for the next 30 days. So what does Daniel do? He opens the windows so that everyone can see him down below toward Jerusalem as he has been instructed. And he kneels and he prays three times a day to his God. I could take you to other New Testament examples. You need to set in your mind an absolute standard. You will obey the word of God as you understand it in the scriptures, regardless of what that costs you personally. The word of God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing, and even more as the end comes. All right, that's a command of scripture. I'm going to do that. And I have. Pandemic or no. We serve a a living God. We obey his commands. We don't obey civil authority when civil authority goes against the word of God. Even if it costs us everything. It is necessary to obey God rather than men. This is a foundation principle of the New Testament church. They're not going to bow down and burn incense on the altar to the Roman Empire or emperor. And they will pay with their lives. They will be torched in the arena because they would not obey the civil government against the word of the living God. They had only one master, only one savior. His name was Jesus, not not the emperor of Rome. Men and women throughout history have paid a dear price for saying, we will obey the word of the living God. Period. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, having hung upon a tree. This man, God lifted up as a prince and savior to his right hand to give repentance to Israel and removal of sins. In your NIV, it will say, for the forgiveness of sins. But again, look at Hebrews 9.26. You'll find there that also in chapter 10 of Hebrews, you'll find that the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin, but simply allow a person of the Old Testament to be declared righteous. So Jesus comes and his blood actually removes sin. It forgives sin, but it also removes it. In fact, we are witnesses of these rhemas, these breathed words of God through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God gave to the ones obeying him. Now, let's stop a minute. We have an impossible situation facing us. That impossible situation that faces us is the absence of the Holy Spirit almost entirely from the American church, from our lives. I'm reading again Holy Spirit Revivals by Charles Finney. And then Reese Howell, Intercessor by Norman Grubb. 
in these accounts, these men, wherever they went, Reese Howells, wherever he went in the mission stations in Africa, revival immediately broke out. Other men had been there laboring for years and barely had anything to show for what they had accomplished. In the story of Holy Spirit revivals with Charles Finney, he went into Boston. He went into England. He went into other places. And other men had labored there for years and just could not accomplish the work of the gospel. People were not converted. Revival did not take place. I have preached holiness as hard and hot as I could. I have been as faithful to Jesus as I can possibly be. And yet, I have not seen the result that a Charles Finney saw. I'm not a Charles Finney. Or a Reese Howell, but I'm not a Reese Howell, but I don't need to be. It's the principle that's involved here. And that principle is that when the anointing power of the Holy Spirit comes, men and women are brought under deep conviction of sin, and there is a life-transforming event that transpires in their life. As they ground their weapons of rebellion, they are awakened to their true condition before a righteous and holy judge, and they see the reality of hell staring them in the face. Or as Jonathan Edwards preaching, sinners in the hands of an angry God, And in his church, no one was stirred. But when he preached it in a neighboring church, the the first great awakening in America that prepared the way for the revolution against England, there would never have been that revolution had Jesus not opened the way through Jonathan Edwards for a great move of revival. Or if you look at John Wesley, or you look at others, George Whitfield. These men had the anointing of the Holy Spirit on their life. So wherever they went, great conviction followed their preaching. And as one pastor said to Charles Finney, Brother, I've been preaching the same thing you were preaching, and I've been preaching that for years, and nothing has happened. You come into town, and you preach that message, and suddenly revival breaks out. Well, Finney seemed to think that it was because of the methods he employed. No, it was not because of the methods he employed. It's because he had been baptized in the fullness and the power of Pentecost Holy Spirit presence. So we go back to Luke, the 11th chapter. And if you believe that you received the Holy Spirit when you were baptized, and that's all there is, it will be soon evident that you do not have the ability to to awaken men's hearts to their condition before hell. You do not have the authority to heal the sick or to raise the dead it's very quickly apparent that you will live and die in Washington, D.C. or wherever you live, and the city will not be turned on its head. There will not be a great confrontation with evil and with darkness. Instead, things will hum along as normal in the world. The church in America, if it's going to do the job that Jesus has called it to do, is going to have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But it's clear to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, we have to turn in repentance to Jesus 
and we must have our sins removed so we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. He was finally, after three days of fasting, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. See, we've tried to do church without the Holy Spirit because, look, we have to do the best job we can do, and if if nothing is working, we've just got to be faithful and trudge on and do what we're supposed No, we're not. Jesus said, stop, wait for the Holy Spirit. The American church is going to very quickly try to go back to the same old, same old. As fear of the pandemic fades, the church is going to try to go back to their buildings and rebuild their Sunday congregations. I spoke with one member of a mega church in the area. And they said to me, Pastor, something's different in our church. There's an ill wind blowing in our church. There's trouble, there's death, there's there's every difficulty is happening. Why is this happening, Pastor? And I said, because Jesus is not going to let the church go back to the same old, same old. A new kind of church must be birthed in America, and it must be a church born out of prayer meetings, out of humility, out of crying out for the Holy Spirit, out of waiting upon the Lord for what he wants to do in America. We're not going to be able to go back to our entertainment, to our culture. The church of the Holy Spirit is a body. It's not an institution. It's not an entertainment center. It's not a social center. It's a very serious people who come together and who earnestly seek after Jesus with all of their hearts. It's a place where love is expressed without judgment. It's a place where where miracles happen. It's a place of holiness and righteousness. That's the New Testament church. That's the Holy Spirit church. The church of Acts was not created by the disciples. It was brought forth by the Holy Spirit. As they obeyed and did what they were told to do, the Holy Spirit moved and opened the way and directed them. I know the time has come when we need to be able to hear clearly the voice of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I can hear very clearly the voice of the Holy Spirit with very specific directions. At other times, I don't do so well. I need to have a very, very clear understanding and a very, very clear way of hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And you need the same. I was shared with by dear friends, Romans 8.28. It's such a powerful, powerful passage. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. We've been called according to the purpose of God. But the instruction is to wait now in prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have to do that as a church in America. I've been very pleased to hear from one person who's a part of an Assemblies of God church in the New England area. They have multiple prayer meetings a week. 
as they gather and they cry out for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they, and they cry out to Jesus for the authority over the powers of darkness. And they pray for the church in America. They pray for our government. They're interceding before God. This is, this is the heart of Jesus for right now. But I'm going to be very frank. Most Christians don't know how to pray. Most don't know how to pray because they don't have any room in their heart to receive the Holy Spirit. They're full of video games. They're full of entertainment. They're full of the world. They're full of work. They're full of all the scheduling, the business. They're just full of everything, but they don't have the room in their heart for the Holy Spirit. And so prayer is very difficult for the church today. It's very superficial. It's not heartbroken sobs. If you knew that your entire family was about to be wiped out and were, they were going to die, unless you went to the Lord and interceded. It's so horrific, I don't want to even think about it. Do you suppose I would be serious and do you think I would weep before the Lord? You know I would. We've become very calloused and very hard. That has to change. We can't go on this way. They wanted to kill them. These Sadducees wanted to to execute the apostles, stone them to death. But that Pharisee Gamal, he countered them. He convinced them with arguments, logical arguments, for why they should not execute the apostles. Verse 40, this is chapter 5, verse 40. And they were persuaded by him, and after having called the apostles, having beaten them or flogged them, each one received 39 blows with a cane, with a rod. It bloodied their backs. It scarred them. They would now carry the scars of this beating the rest of their lives. They were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they released them. Then they were departing from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were considered worthy to be treated shamefully in behalf of the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they were not ceasing teaching and preaching Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't back away. They didn't back up. And they would not stop preaching in Jerusalem, even if it meant they were to be beaten. They instead were rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer a little bit of what Jesus Christ had suffered. So now bloody and scarred. They stand before the people. Probably blood seeping through their clothing. They stand before the people rejoicing because they've been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Have you been in any way suffering for the name of Jesus? I've not been beaten for Jesus. I have to tell you, I hope I could rejoice if I were beaten for Jesus.
Today we've talked about what has to happen to the church in America. We have to grow a backbone. We have to lay aside our plans as a church. And we've got to go to prayer. We've got to pray. And we've got to wait on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm not willing to live my life according to the rules of the modern church in America. Go along to get along, compromise, entertain, build an institution, take care of finances, pastor, be a CEO, be a coach, be everything the people need. I'm not willing to go along with that. I'm going to wait on the Holy Spirit. You're welcome to come and wait with me. You're welcome to come walk with me. But understand who I am. Some people get really angry with me and cut me off. It's okay. It's all right. I'm going to walk with Jesus. If you want to walk with me, come and walk with me with Jesus. Well, we're out of time for today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm crying out to the Lord to give birth to a Holy Spirit church. A place of holiness and righteousness. A place directed by the word of the living God. If you'd like to be a part of the support for this broadcast, we're a faith ministry. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And I thank a dear sister, Alice, who sent an offering yesterday for Jesus for this work. Thank you, dear sister. That's a National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia. 22195. Now, you're also welcome to go online and give online if that's easier for you. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. And please go there. The videos are there. Podcasts are there. Brother Ed is doing a magnificent job of building out this new webpage. Go check it out. My brother, my sister, thank you for being with me today. I love you dearly. I know Jesus is our Lord. I'm going to be faithful to him. Even if I get beaten, I pray you hold the same position. Let's wait on the Holy Spirit. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory.